0: Well, I will never, ever forget the Christmas that I almost won the lottery. Let me set the table for you. First of all, my brother and sister-in-law, so Sarah's side of the family, uh, have developed a habit of throwing a few scratch-off lottery tickets into their gift bags. And so I think it was was like seven or eight years ago. It was a while uh, ago. And we went through our normal... Routine of doing multiple gift exchanges. We do both a traditional gift exchange and a white elephant gift exchange And after we did those gift exchanges, I hadn't noticed it at first But at the bottom of one of my bags was a scratch-off lottery ticket didn't really think anything of it I mean most years as you would imagine nobody really wins anything when they scratch these things except maybe a few dollars or you know Or another another scratch-off ticket, but this year was different because as I grabbed the ticket and I scratched One match, two matches. Now, I don't know how many of you know the feeling of anticipation that comes when scratching a lottery ticket. Probably not very many, too many church people here, but but when you you scratch these tickets, you kind of get this this feeling of anticipation, But, but you also don't want to get too far because you know that the next thing you're about to scratch is going to be a whammy, it's going to be a dud. I make the final scratch. I won ten grand. Ten thousand dollars. It was like the top prize in this this particular game. And so I'm trying to play it cool at this point. I'm trying to play it cool. I don't want to get too excited. So I mosey over to Sarah. I show her my golden ticket. If we can get it a little quiet conversation. And finally, the family catches on. They say, What? What's, what's going on? And I said, I won $10,000. They said, No way. I said, Look. I showed him the ticket, and sure enough, true story, $10,000. There was only one problem the impish smirk on my sister in law's face. I looked at the ticket again, I turned it over, and at the very bottom, in very fine print, it said, This ticket is a fake. It possesses no value whatsoever. I know, it's sad, isn't it? I, I allowed myself to start thinking about all the useless things I might buy if I had actually won. It was a phony. I mean, at first glance, it looked like a real ticket. It felt like a real ticket. In many ways, it functioned like a real ticket, but it was not real or true. It was phony. Well, this morning as we continue our series, Jesus the Great I Am, the passage that we're about to turn to and look at has an absolutely fascinating bookend. At the beginning of the passage, we read that Jesus is speaking to a group who is said to have believed him. Disciples, perhaps. But by the end of this passage, we read that this same group of people is now holding Stones in their hand, ready to kill Jesus. So what in the world happened? What happened was, in the space between, Jesus touched on some pressure points that really exposed their faith as phony. That they were not truly his disciples. They were, they were false. Which really begs an important question. How do we know if someone is truly a disciple of Jesus or not? How do we tell the real ones from the fake ones? More to the point, how do we know that we are truly his disciples? In a room like this, I'd have to imagine that many, if not most of us, would say, I'm a Christian, so how can I know? What are the marks of a true disciple? These are the questions that we will work hard together to answer this morning from God's Word. So turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 8, and we're going to be uh, biting off a pretty good chunk of text this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 31 to 59. If you don't have a Bible with you, I would strongly encourage you, grab a pew Bible, turn to page 894, especially when we have a, a passage like this where there's a large amount of text uh, to be able to interact with the scriptures as we, as we walk through them will be very helpful to you. So grab a pew Bible, turn to 894, John 8, 31 to 59. I'll read the entire section. Hang with me as we go through it, and then we will uh, walk back through in more detail. John 8, beginning in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly My disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet... You seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. He answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now, you seek to kill me. A man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. And they said, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, "'If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say?' It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires.' He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he's the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And you said to him, now we know that you have a demon. If I were to say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, that Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. There is obviously a lot that's happening in this passage, but I want us to look together at three indicators or three marks that I think the text gives us of a true disciple of Jesus, three indicators of a true disciple. The first that we pick up from that opening section is that true disciples continue in Jesus' word The true disciple is marked not so much by an initial outburst of enthusiasm, but by an ongoing steady perseverance in Jesus' teaching. We see it in verse 31. You might check it out. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus makes a connection here, an unbreakable connection between a true disciple and a person that would abide or continue in his word. And if you notice, that sets off a chain reaction. If we continue in his word or his teaching, we will know the truth. His word supplies us with real, living, even absolute truth, which is really important these days because I don't know about you, but it's getting harder and harder to discern what is really true or not. And we know that politicians, for example, don't always tell us the truth, do they? That the media, even the internet, believe it or not, doesn't always tell us the truth. We don't always tell the truth. And to complicate things even further... Truth is becoming relative in the eyes of some, right? I'm sure you've all heard this. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. Truth is really relative. What Jesus is offering us here, by way of his word, is real truth. And truth about the matters, frankly, that really matter. Life and death and human relationships and God and salvation. Of course, we know that Jesus is not just talking about accumulated knowledge here, right? The truth has an intended effect. Did you catch it in verse 32? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free. Free from from what? This is the question that these, quote, believers ask, a pressure point that that begins to peel away that paper-thin faith. They said, We're children of Abraham. We've never been slaves. They said, how can we be free? They look past the current bondage of sorts that they were facing by Rome and many nations in the past. They said, we're children of Abraham. We're we're not bound to anyone or anything. Jesus' answer, though, in verse 34, spotlights the source of true bondage. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So the bondage that he's talking about and the freedom that he's talking about is freedom from sin. Which, if you were here last week, you know we talked about the devastating effects of dying in sin and the alternative to dying in sin, of course, dying in faith. Well, this week, Jesus highlights the devastation of living in sin. It's slavery. He says bondage. Slave is a a cruel master. That always takes and takes and never gives, it always overpromises and under-delivers. I'm reminded of a, a faithful Australian pastor who one time received a visit from a very concerned parent after he delivered a pretty no-nonsense sermon about sin and the power of sin to hold us in bondage and captivity. The parent went to the pastor, and he said, Pastor, listen, I, I can appreciate what you're trying to do here, but I'm afraid that if you continue talking so regularly and so boldly about sin that our children might actually be tempted to, to sin even more. You were highlighting it. And I'd appreciate it. You know, call sin a mistake, call it a slight variation from the truth, but but spiritual bondage? I mean, can you tone it down a little bit? The pastor didn't respond. He turned though and walked into his kitchen and from up on a high shelf he grabbed a a small bottle that had the label poison across it. He walked back over to the man, put his arm around him and he said, I see what you want me to do here. You want me to change this label from poison to essence of peppermint. See, sin is serious, serious business. Jesus spoke seriously about sin. And if we live in bondage to sin, we will never know the truth. And if we don't know the truth, and we're not continuing in Jesus' word. And of course, if we're not continuing in his word, then we are not truly his disciples. You know, as I think about our church, Old North, in relationship to our first section here, a question comes to mind. Do you know your Bible too well? Now, don't get me wrong. It's very important that we know and study the Scriptures. We have many venues for growing in our relationship with the Scriptures, and I encourage you to participate in any of that. But I think for those of us who have been at this a long time, it is so important for us to remember that the goal of knowing the truth is not mastering the truth. The goal is being mastered by the truth, it's being set free by the truth to a life of ongoing obedience to Jesus. Along a similar line, do we still recognize our own helplessness against the power of sin apart from the liberating word of Jesus? Or have we just outgrown humility? When we're confronted with truth, do we think more about our spiritual credentials than our spiritual need Jesus is pushing us here to remember that if we are truly his disciples we will continue in his word now I think a reasonable question to ask after this is does this mean that the Christian life is basically relegated to doing what Jesus says kind of a mechanical obedience right if I just do the right thing then I'll authenticate my Christian life Not at all what Jesus is saying. True discipleship is also highly, highly relational. And we we catch a glimpse of this in the next section here that we're studying in John 8. And in that we see the second mark of true discipleship is that true disciples resemble their heavenly father. We can know that we are truly Christ's disciples if we resemble and represent our heavenly father. The Jews now are bristling with Jesus' words. They're bristling by the indication, the scent of the fact that they were spiritual slaves. So they fire back in verse 39, Abraham is our father. What is it with Abraham in this passage? I mean, if you notice, go back through your Bible and look at how many times the word Abraham is used. It's all about Abraham. What the Jews were doing here is they were connecting their spiritual authenticity with their spiritual ancestry. I'm a 10th generation Christian. They're basically saying, my daddy and his daddy before him and his daddy before him. Don't you know who we are? We're children of Abraham. But as Jesus has done throughout the entire chapter, he presses the issue and he tells them that spiritual heritage is not about national bloodline. He says, In verse 39, listen, if you were Abraham's children, you would actually do what Abraham did. But you all, you're ready to kill me. That is not what Abraham did. No, no. You are doing the works of your father. Your father. The inference of another father really fires them up. They go to the next level in verse 41. We were not born of sexual immorality. A clear jab at Jesus God is our father. So at this point, you can see the subtleties are really over. And so Jesus responds ever so clearly in verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. The devil? Listen, all of us have a spiritual father. You might be the most successful, well-adjusted person in the room and think you're in total control of your life, that you're running the show, but... At the end of the day, all of us submit to some type of spiritual authority. It's either God or it's the devil himself. And, and we will resemble our spiritual father in a couple of different ways. We see it here in both desire and indeed, Desire and deed. Let's look first at desire here. Jesus, in verse 44, continues his evaluation You are of your father, the devil, and he says, and your will is to do your father's desires, which just stands to follow, right? Now, on the other hand, he said, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. We see the the contrast, don't we? And in that contrast, friends, a fundamental desire for the true disciple of Jesus, and that is love for Jesus. Jesus. By my own admission, this is something that I I take for granted way too often in the Christian life. Because if you've been at this a while, if you're not careful, Christianity can become more like a career, like a profession that we just do, and we do it really well, and yet the question remains, do we actually love him? Have we forgotten that at the core, Christianity is a vibrant relationship with a person As we're evaluating our lives, do we see ourselves growing in affection for Jesus? True disciples also resemble their heavenly father indeed. So not only in desire, but indeed, because some unapplied feeling of love for Jesus without subsequent obedience is not really discipleship at all. We read in the New Testament over and over again, if you love me, you will obey my commands, you'll do what I say. Again, looking at the contrast here in this section, Jesus describes the deeds of the devil and subsequently his children. Verse 44, he was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him, likely pointing back to Genesis 3. And this was certainly the posture of this group of people. They were ready to kill Jesus, and they would not receive his word precisely because they were not children of God. And then on the other side, verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. Hears the words. The word Jesus uses for hears means to heed. And it implies obedience. It implies action. It is an action-oriented listening that leads to obedience. And, of course, the supreme example of spiritual sonship that we see in this passage and throughout the Gospel of John is Jesus himself, one who came from the Father. Yet that also applies to his disciples, true disciples are spiritually obedient children. Most of you know my buddy Topher, my son Topher. This is us. This was at uh, Tequila Halesco after church last Sunday. Kids eat free there, by the way. A good place to go on Sunday afternoon. They're not paying me to say that. I'm not sure why I just said that. But uh, this is my buddy Topher, and anywhere I go, whether it's a restaurant or we're out and about running errands, we almost always hear comments like, man, you can't deny that one. He he looks exactly like you. I have to tell you about this conversation we had the other day. We're sitting around and we're talking about uh, the transition between basketball season and baseball season. Topher's played both sports now for a couple of years. And uh, he knows that my favorite sport growing up was baseball. So with that, he says to me, Dad, I think I'm ready to declare my sport. Nine years old, I'm sure to declare a sport. Okay, I said, okay, buddy. What is it? He goes, I, I think it's basketball. But I, I know that baseball was your favorite when you were a kid and you were growing up. And, and so is that okay? I mean, I really, I really want to do what you want me to do. So, of course, I told him, sorry, bud, you got to kill your dream. It's baseball or nothing. <laughs> well, of course, I didn't say that encouraged him in sincerity. That's what he said. So the question is, when people look into your life, do they say, man, does she look like her dad? Boy, does she love her heavenly father. You just tell, she just loves Jesus and is eager to do what he says, even when it's hard. Is that, is that the resemblance that people pick up as they look at you? You know, another point of application that I think we have to draw from this section is for for those of us here who are parents and even grandparents and it's that we have got to work together and work really hard to help our kids appropriate their faith in Jesus I mean the big issue here was these Jews tying their salvation to their national heritage and Jesus says no no you're missing it There's a spiritual heritage, a spiritual inheritance that's far superior to that. And while we thank God for Christian families, our kids will become Christians, not because we are Christians, but because they have appropriated the gospel. They have taken Jesus on their own, as their own. And so we've got to work really hard at that together. We've got to work really hard at our commitment to at home giving them regular doses of the gospel, our commitment to Christian community, coming Sunday mornings, Wednesday evenings, whenever it is, to partner with others who can help our kids appropriate their faith. Because true disciples resemble their Heavenly Father. True disciples also continue and abide in Jesus' word. But there's a third mark. And it really is the the big issue, right, that John has been pointing us to throughout John chapter 8. And it's that True disciples embrace, fully embrace Jesus' divine identity. You cannot be a true follower of Jesus if you do not glory in his divine identity. We look back at the conversation Jesus is having here, and in this final section, man, the gloves come totally off. The Jews now clearly exposed for a paper-thin faith, a phony faith, Go off on Jesus in verse 48. Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? They've now resorted to ad hominem arguments. They're calling Jesus demon-possessed and making racial slurs is basically what's happening here. Jesus says, "I, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father. You dishonor me. And then he continues in verse 51 and says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word... He will never see death. Oh, he's pushing it now. He is really pushing it now. Who could could make a claim like that? Anyone keeps my word, they will not see or taste death. You can see how it enrages them in verse 52. Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father, Abraham, who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And that is the question, isn't it? Deliverance from death? Only God could make a claim like that. Jesus, be careful. You're about to step over a very dangerous line. Rather than back down, though, Jesus takes his claim all the way to its logical conclusion. He tells them twice in verses 49 and then 51 that the Father, the one they actually claim is God, is seeking his glory. That is fascinating to me. We want to know if we're following the one true God. We just ask this question, is he seeking the glory of Jesus? Fascinating to me. Then he goes on and says, Abraham actually rejoiced to see his day. Their spiritual father, Abraham, actually expressed a joyful faith in the promise that one day, someone in his line would bless all the peoples, all the nations of the world. And Abraham looked forward in faith and joy to that day. And then finally, in verse 58, Jesus drops the atomic bomb on them. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. He didn't say before Abraham was I was. He said I am. And so this is this is no grammatical error. It's a claim to the name. The name of the eternal, self existent, uncreated, everlasting God of the Bible. The I am of Genesis 3, before Abraham was, I am. We might imagine the silence in the temple at that moment. There would be no more words after this, only stones to throw at Jesus the blasphemer, because The divinity of Jesus and his self-claims really is the issue that will expose whether or not we are a true disciple or not. If you want to get to the heart of the matter, the question is, what do you think of Jesus? Who do you believe that he is? And the identity of Jesus and his claims forces the issue. I hope you see this. His claim to be God draws a hard line in the sand. We can either embrace him or we can reject him. As Tim Keller says, we can either crown him or kill him. He's either God or he is the phony. There's no middle ground here. And perhaps no one says this better than C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say, Lewis says. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. Lord. So, who do you say that he is? True disciples, true disciples glory in the fact that he is God. Because, please catch this embracing Jesus' claim to be God is so much more than just intellectual assent. Think about it only as God could Jesus say, My words are true. Only as God could Jesus make the claim that he could actually set us free from sin. Only as God could Jesus make the statement that if we follow his word and abide in him, that he could actually keep us from death. If you're not God, you can't make that statement, at least in a true manner. So embracing Jesus' divine identity is really an an ongoing dependence that he is who he said he is. It's counting on the fact that, that as God, only he can provide the salvation that we really need. Only he can protect us and keep us from seeing death. And so that means that embracing this identity is not just a mark of the true disciple. It is the hallmark of a true disciple. These are heavy words from Jesus this morning, aren't they? And so if you're here this morning, and and some of this is really resonating, I might consider a few final takeaways. First, if if you're here this morning and you would say, Chris, listen, if I'm honest, I've really been just playing the game for a long time, maybe for years, that if I'm I'm honest in assessing my own spiritual health and life, I am really not exercising and expressing the marks of true discipleship. I sense God opening my eyes to the reality of who Jesus is today. And so my encouragement to you first is to respond to the gospel, to to respond to the, the message that tells all of us that we're all sinners in need of a Savior, that we're all separated from God because of our sin, both in nature and in choice. And God has provided such a Savior in Jesus. He himself has come. And if we put our faith in him, if we turn away from that old life of rebellion and rejection against him or that old life, frankly, of just putting on a nice religious mask, we can, in fact, be saved. The other thing I would encourage you to do is tell somebody. There'll be some leaders up here at the end of the service as we dismiss. We'd love for you to come up and just share that so we can pray for you and we can encourage you. Now, maybe you're coming away from a passage like this and and you're saying, you know, I, I see these marks in my own life, but I really want to refresh my commitment to continue abiding in the word, to continue to growing in my likeness of who God is, to continue to be resolute and identifying personally with who Jesus said he is. I would encourage you, first of all, keep going. Keep growing. But I'd also tell you, maybe refresh that commitment to helping others to do the same. Listen, I think sadly, we probably all know someone who at one point demonstrated some type of evidence that they were following Jesus and yet time has really called that into question. And so your job then, this week, is to pick up the phone and to call that person, to encourage them with the hope of the gospel, maybe to invite them to coffee or to lunch and and maybe even to read this passage together. Hey, we were in church this weekend and walked through this passage in John's gospel and boy, I thought of you and just wanna encourage you. I mean, that's something tangibly. I mean, I'm sure we all know that person And my prayer for every one of us is that all of us together, as a community of people, would refresh our joy and commitment not just to be marginal followers of Jesus, but to be true disciples of His. To be a people that long to continue in His Word, growing in obedience, to to resemble so clearly our Heavenly Father to grow in our desires for Jesus, our desire to do what he says, and and above all, to continue to depend upon and to glory in the fact that Jesus really is God, that he is who he claimed to be, the uncreated, eternal, everlasting God, the great I am. Let's pray together. Father, to that end, We recognize our own inability to cause this type of growth that you must do it. And so we cast ourselves upon you and upon your grace and mercy, not only to save us, but to keep us. And we believe that to be true, Lord. And I ask that you would help this community of people to demonstrate the marks of true discipleship this morning that we would rejoice in glory in the fact that Jesus claimed to be God and proved it by way of his life and his death and his resurrection. He is all to us. We echo that now as we sing in his name. Amen.